The scripture reading tonight is actually from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 22 through 35. On the next day, the people who remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. However, boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, what, what, what must we do to be doing the work of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The word of the Lord. In sixth grade, I had a prophetic vision at Bible camp. In the vision, two armies, black and white, clashed in this dark space, uh, a vacuum. And at the last second, uh, when the white team was, white team, white army, the white team, was about to lose, uh, a knight mounted on a white horse arrived and destroyed the black army. It was like Peter Jackson directing Left Behind Medieval Edition. The camp counselors and later my parents read me Revelation 6 about the first rider of the apocalypse. That is, what you, that is what you saw, they told me. You have been anointed with the mantle of the prophet, they said. You are part of a chosen generation. You'll be a great spiritual leader. I just passed the age of Sunday school, the stories of Jesus healing people and feeding people and turning the other cheek, uh, the children's milk. In sixth grade, they sat us down and said, here's the truth. We are in the midst of a spiritual war. Satan owns the world. It is his domain. Demons, false prophets, sinners, they are everywhere and they are all tempting you into darkness. And all of you sixth graders, you need to man up. That summer, the theme for Bible camp was God's army, and during the evening sessions, the spirit descended and we worshipped until utter exhaustion. Kids I knew wept uncontrollably, and I wept uncontrollably, for my sins maybe, for the sins of the world, for something really important. 
And I remember watching one older guy dancing in a fugue state, his consciousness absent, his body flailing in automated reverie. And I wanted to be him, to be that into it. And we were ecstatic and sad and scared, and we were ready for the hem of God's robe to brush past us, to burn away our old selves, all 13 years of dirt and sin in the refiner's fire. Those nights, it felt like there had been a tear in the fabric of reality, and this wild, exuberant, dangerous energy was pouring in, igniting all of us together. One night, they had us take out the sword of the Spirit. They said that before we could be Christian soldiers, we needed to rid ourselves of the darkness within. And they had us raise the sword of the Spirit and plunge it into our stomachs, a spiritual sebaku, a living sacrifice, they called it. And that's the night I saw the first rider of the apocalypse. I was also having out-of-body experiences that summer. So I could concentrate my mind and somehow lift myself out of my body, ascending, looping upwards into dark space. If I were to go out far enough, it seemed that I'd be able to sever the link with my body and return to a different body altogether. And it scared me the further out I went. I worried that there may be a point that I couldn't return to my own body, some invisible line but I also fantasized about who I'd come back as. Maybe Corey Matthews from Boy Meets World or Gary Payton from the Seattle Supersonics. But something fundamental changed, though, late that summer. So we were on a camping trip, and I remember lying in my sleeping bag, suddenly feeling myself lift out of my body. And I pulled myself back in, but there was a resistance, as though something out there in the dark space was pulling me towards itself. It continued happening throughout the camping trip. Sitting around the fire, roasting marshmallows, boom, there I was, lifted out of my body. Laying on a beach towel, resting on a hike, anytime I wasn't moving. So after a day or two of this, I woke up my dad in the middle of the night and told him what was happening. And I doubt he explained it very well, and it was very late, and he prayed with me, and his advice to me was simple. Just don't do it. And, it. and it actually turned out to be good advice. I didn't do it anymore, and the involuntary out-of-body experience things stop happening. And over the next few years, I saw enough people slain in the spirit that it just lost the breathtaking energy it once had, And the dazed dancing, that automated reverie, just seemed sort of feigned. And when somebody would have a revelation or a vision, I'd think, well, isn't that convenient? So over the course of a few years, I had turned into a spiritual cynic. And soon after that, I took my dad's advice about the involuntary out-of-body experience thing a little further. I just didn't do spirituality anymore. And roughly, that's where I am now. I'm not really a spiritual person. I don't sense spirits or auras. My prayers don't move objects in the physical world. Which makes the reading for today difficult for me. So let's put it in context, today's reading. The day before Jesus fed the 5,000 and they wanted to make him king, so Jesus withdrew himself into the mountain. 
His disciples, it seems, just took off on their boat without him, and there was a terrible storm, and Jesus walked across the water and saved them all. So now he's on the other side of the lake when the crowd of 5,000 shows up again, and Jesus doesn't seem particularly happy to see them. Maybe he's exhausted from miracling all day. Miracle whipped, as a friend of mine put it. (laughs) So the crowd shows up, and Jesus is like, so you're here for the bread? You shouldn't be. you got to work for bread that doesn't spoil, the spiritual bread, the bread of life. And the crowd is like, "Uh, okay, how do we get that bread, the non-spoiling type? And he's like, you got to believe. And they're like, all right, how do we do that? Uh, This old guy, Moses, he gave us manna to help us believe. Will there be manna? And Jesus is like, "Uh, excuse me? Moses didn't give you bread. God gave you bread. And I like to think the crowd pauses here, thinking about this sort of bizarre answer that they get from Jesus. Then they say this amazingly innocent and sad thing. Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus is like, well, guess what? I'm that bread. The discussion goes on, and the crowd's grumbling. Oh, so that's where our text ends for today. But I'm going to pull in the rest of the chapter. So the discussion goes on, and the crowd's grumbling, and Jesus tells them that your ancestors ate manna in the desert and died, and that they need to eat the bread of life, which lasts for eternal life, and that's him. And that gets the crowd riled up more, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus is like, exactly. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the crowd is like, well, that's disgusting. Uh, We're leaving. And the text says that many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And if we think about this whole passage, this whole section in Christianese, you know, it's no problem. It fits right in. Jesus is the bread of life. He sacrificed himself for our sins, and we eat a little spiritual wafer of Jesus once a month, maybe more, because you are what you eat. But when we realize that these people are actually people, right, that the 5,000 are actually people, actually hungry, actually probably very poor people, Jesus sounds a lot like a jerk. So if you can't tell, I'm not really a big fan of Jesus in this chapter. I mean, this crowd of 5,000, these are not rich and powerful people that he's talking to. You don't follow around some guy because he fed you once. He's not jerking around Pharisees here, people who have it pretty well. He's jerking around probably poor, hungry people. He tells the crowd that they need to believe, and they say, so what sign are you going to give us so that we can believe? And he could have said, a few signs? Uh, Well, if you remember, uh, I fed all of you yesterday. (laughs) And uh, my boys here saw me walking on water last night, so does that count? But instead, he just ducks the question, right? He tells them that he's the bread of life, that their ancestors ate manna in the desert and they died, that they need to drink his blood to get eternal life, that the flesh is nothing and spirit is life, basically nothing about how they're supposed to believe. So 
I get it, I think. I think Jesus here is trying to startle us out of our default perspective, right? The perspective of responsibility and food and shelter and that stuff. He's trying to startle us into thinking of a world that is deeper and louder than the one we live in. But he's literally telling hungry people that they need to be less focused on their hunger. It's brutal. I love the earthly Jesus. The Jesus that was born from a screaming woman. The Jesus that sweat, that got stones in his sandals. The Jesus that actually died and then rose again, not in a metaphor, but physically. You know, bones and blood. And normally hearing the words of Christ helps me be a more more present to the world, to the poor and the lonely and the sick. Not because I get a bigger mansion up in heaven, but because it's the right thing to do here and now. But in this passage, it seems that Jesus has a simple, brutal criticism for all this earthly stuff. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing, which is what he tells the crowd of 5,000. And I think Jesus is trying to get us to think about the heavenly kingdom, about a world beyond the earthly stuff, about bread that will keep you full forever, that grace and mercy and love of God will never leave you. And as nice as this sounds, it's the same message that I grew up with, the kind that allows people to gloss over the suffering and heartbreak happening here and now, the message that tells us we should not love the world or anything in the world, that there's a spiritual war being waged and we need to concentrate on people's souls, not their bodies, as if there's a distinction. Like, do not concern yourself with the things of this world. Raise your eyes to heaven. Like, literally raise your eyes so you don't have to see the suffering right in front of you. And it's like I'm back at summer camp and Jesus is saying, take out the sword of the Spirit. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. That's what Jesus says right after he says the spirit is life and the flesh is nothing. And that's after the dead ancestors eating blood and flesh part. And I think that this is the crack in the text, a way to, to, to find the good news in this passage. So I was thinking about brutality. Right about the brutality of your ancestors ate manna in the desert and died, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And this brutality struck me as odd in this context. See, I find most spiritual writing, you know, Gnostic or New Age authors, they're anemic, they're flowery, they're bloodless, abstract, vague, But here, I can almost see the sweat running down Jesus' face as he sneers, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, or your ancestors ate manna in the desert and died. These sentences are hot to the touch. They breathe, they're startling, there's an energy to them, a violent, disruptive energy, one that feels powerfully physical. Jesus is not a ghost, a gentle guru, There's nothing more visceral, more brutal than cannibalism. And this is a man with red-hot blood in his veins, and he will pour it into cups for you. It reminds me of that energy I felt as a kid at Bible camp. 
So Jesus is pointing us to a richer reality that is always already there, a world that is already always suffused with the wild, dangerous love, that here in simple bread and wine, God's wild, dangerous love is already always there. Sometimes it just takes a little brutality to get a point across. Now come, let's drink blood and eat flesh.